Well, uh, you can grab a seat, sit back and relax. <clears throat> and uh, I want to welcome you, send a really warm welcome to you this morning if you're joining us. Uh, as Rob said, we're actually wrapping up uh, a series that we've been doing for the last couple of weeks called Staying in Love. Now, <clears throat> before we talk about what we're going to talk about today um, and, and close this series, I want to acknowledge that um, if you've been with us and you're not married or your parents just dragged you along or like love relationships are like a really, really far off in the distance thing for you, um, I want to let you know that what I hope for you or what I hope that you got throughout this series um, is that this collection of 66 books that have been compiled together over a number of millennia that Christians refer to as the Bible, it's not one book, it's more like a library. What I hope that you've discovered as we've journeyed through part one, part two, part three, and then as we'll look through today, I hope you'll have found that, that it actually has some really practical things to say about the here and now that if you actually unpack it and look at it, that you can have better relationships, you'll approach your finances in a different way, you'll let go of grudges easier, you'll forgive easier. And I hope that you'll discover that even if it's not marriage, um, this series hasn't connected with you, that maybe you'll think, maybe I need to open that up and see what it has to say about other areas of my life. But um, if you have been joining us and you've been tracking along with this series and you're kind of, you can't wait to hear what our part four is going to be about, really... For the last couple of weeks, we've just been asking one question um, in, in maybe an indirect or indirect kind of, uh, or not a direct kind of way. And this is a question. Is it possible for two people to fall in love and stay in love forever? And the answer that if you look at it culture, the answer that culture would give you is, uh, maybe. Like, if you look at, if you look at the, um, the data that we have around divorces, um, it's kind of, depending on who you look at, it's either just over 50% or just under 50% of, of all marriages end in divorce. So if you kind of look out at culture and you ask, what does the landscape of the world look? What do my friends' marriages look like? What do our marriages look like? It'd be like, uh, maybe if we try really, really hard and we get a little bit of luck and things go in our favor. But <clears throat> here's, what, here's what we've been talking about is that we actually believe that it is possible to fall in love and stay in love. We, I actually believe that even if I got up here for four weeks and told you it's not possible, it's not going to happen, you can't do it, no one's going to do it, we're all doomed, no one's going to be able to fall in love and stay in love forever, that there would be a part of you that disagrees with me. That there would be a part of you, and you might not even be able to explain it, but there is a part of you that's saying, no, nah, mm, Chris, I actually think it is possible. And you don't have to agree with me on this next part, but, but I would say that that part of you that says that is actually God's fingerprint on your life that you were designed and you were created in such a way to fall in love and actually that love would, is, is designed by God to last forever. And so the reason that you feel that there is a way is because God has designed you and God has designed me with that capacity. <clears throat> and so in part one, uh, David, actually David was with us for parts one and two. And uh, in part one, David looked at the idea that if we want to fall in love and stay in love, that we need to make love a verb. Okay, we have to transition from the idea of love as a feeling and transition to the idea of love as a verb. And then in part two, uh, what we looked at and David shared with us is that if you want to fall in love and stay in love, then you need to have a plan, right? Because we all had a plan of how to get in love and how to get that girl's attention or how to get that uh, guy to, to wink at us or smile at us. But it's almost like once we fall in love, the plan goes out the window because it's all done, right? And then in part three last week, I introduced you to two of my friends who um, uh, aren't here this, with us this morning, but they were Mr. and Mrs. Mug. And we talked about uh, Mr. and Mrs. Mug, how with Mr. and Mrs. Mug, um, every single person who comes together in a love relationship or a marriage brings some stuff with them. 
and they bring their stuff with them and in a marriage you bump into each other in a way in which you don't bump into each other in any other kind of relationship. And if you're not careful, and if I'm not careful, some of the stuff that comes out of us, we will have a tendency to point the finger at the other person and say, well, it's your fault, this stuff is coming out of me. And so we said we really need to deal with, with some of our stuff and uh, we gave you some kind of really practical ways to do that over the first, uh, first three weeks. And today's going to be no different because this is a super practical series. And so we're going to finish with um, what, another practical thing that you can do this, uh, this week and hopefully longer than this week uh, to, to continue to fall in love and stay in love. And we're going to actually um, look at um, a decision that we make. And it's a decision that you make and that I make every single day throughout our lives. When we first got in a relationship, uh, we deliberately used to um, choose what to insert in the gaps of this decision, okay? Um, and over time, whether, whether it was because uh, we weren't paying attention or life just got in the road, what we inserted in the gap of this decision began to change. Now, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to show us a little bit of a framework to, to, uh, so that we can explore and unpack how to change what we put in the gap. But before I do that, I want to show you uh, what someone, a really famous person, um, wrote about this whole idea of love. Because we've been talking about this whole idea of love, and in what he writes, he actually talks about this decision that we have to make and that we're going to talk about this morning. And chances are, even if you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, even if like, this is your first time to church, um, you know and you've read or seen or heard something similar to what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, what we're going to look at this morning is a chapter from a letter that was written to a church uh, that was started in Corinth. And this church was started by a guy called Paul. Paul started this church in the city of Corinth, um, which is actually in modern-day Greece. So if you kind of go to your atlas, you can find this city. It still exists. And um, this is a letter that Paul, who started this church, wrote back, to this, uh, wrote back to this city. And we actually have two of these letters that have survived all the way through antiquity. And so this is the first letter we have, um, quite simply because it's the earliest, right? So this is the earliest letter, and Paul writes to them, and he explains, it's called the love chapter. So if you've been at a wedding, maybe you had some of this verse at your wedding, okay, it's going to sound familiar, but you might not just not have known that Paul wrote this. And so Paul wrote it, and the first six verses of what we're going to uh, read make total sense, right? You are not going to look at this and go, wow, I never thought of that. Like, this is just going to be so, so obvious. But there's going to be something that happens in verse 7 that if we look at it, we're actually kind of going to be a little confused because we're going to almost be like Paul. I think that's bad advice for staying in love. I think if we were to take what you're saying literally, it would not help us stay in love. And so we're going to talk about that because that verse 7 has everything to do with the decision that we make every single day. So th this is what Paul says. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud, right? This is making sense so far, right? Like, love is patient. Yeah, I could, I could do to, to be a little more patient. Love is kind. Yeah, I could, I could do to be a little bit more kind. It doesn't envy. I should probably get, not get so jealous, okay? It doesn't boast, right? Okay, it is not proud. Like, everyone's kind of like, yeah, okay, this, this is good sense. Makes sense, Paul. Um, it does not dishonor others, right? Well, that just goes without saying if we're talking about love, right? It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, okay, like that's, I could do to, to listen to Paul's advice there, um, personally. It keeps no record of wrongs, right, that's for some, of, for some of you, you're really, really good at this, okay, an argument comes up and you'll remember. Remember three years ago, on the 2nd of March, when it was 17 degrees outside, it was 5.27pm exactly, and you said, okay, some of us could, could do to like, 
keep no record of wrongs. But so far, none of this is like, wow, Paul, I can't believe this. And then he goes on, he says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Pretty standard stuff. We could actually probably go through and do an entire message on every single one of these things that Paul talks about because we've all got a little bit of space to grow in these areas. But none of us are kind of thinking like, wow, this is revolutionary, Paul. But what he says next, I want to read it to you first and um, because if we take it, uh, it's, it's got these four phrases. Four phrases and all of these four phrases are joined by this one little Greek word because Paul would have originally written this in Greek, not in English. And this one little Greek word says that all the words after it are supposed to be taken as one big whole, not segmented into four separate things. So this is what Paul writes. He says, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Now when we read that, right, because we're English speakers, we kind of go, okay, it protects, pause. It always trusts, pause. It always hopes pause, it always perseveres, pause. And I used to read these two and I'd see this four separate things and here is where my issue with was, uh, was with it. This word, like Paul, it always trusts. What if there's evidence to the contrary? What if there's a whole mass of overwhelming evidence to the contrary? Am I still supposed to trust then? Because that's what codependent people do, isn't it? Right. They just believe whatever you want to believe. And, and we know that you should not want it, you don't want to be in a relationship with a codependent person. Okay, that's not healthy for you, it's not healthy for them, it's not healthy for a long-term successful marriage. And so I'd always look at this and I was like, This Paul, this is just kind of confusing. But it's because I'd kind of done what so many of us do, and we'd taken these out as individual pieces, instead of realizing that it should sort of it could be always protects, trusts, hopes, perseveres. And I want to kind of use this, because this is what we're going to talk about, to give us a framework for the decision that we make. And the decisions that we make every single day are decisions that we started off with when we were dating. And the decision that we make every single day starts with this. Something happens and we have some expectations, okay? We talked, we talked about some of the expectations we might have in, in marriages last week, but some of these expectations could be, you said you'd be home at five. You said you'd pick the kids up from school. Okay? You told me you'd pay the bill. All right? We talked about how you would take the trash out. Okay? You heard that Rob and I, that's a big one for us. Okay? We just forget all the time. So we talk, and you have a conversation and there are some expectations. Okay? Then what happens is you have some experiences. Okay? And there's some expectations. You said you'd be home at 5. My experience is it's now 5.30 and you're not home. Okay? You said you'd pick up the kids from school and we talked about it and you agreed upon it and you said, yeah, even though work is busy, you're coming that way, it makes more sense for you to pick them up. What you experienced, I'm now getting a phone call from the school who think I'm a bad parent because you haven't picked the kids up, okay? Expectations, we had a conversation about how you need to take the rubbish out if you're the last one to put stuff in it. What I'm experiencing now is you sitting on the couch acting as if like, you know, it's all just fine and dandy, okay? Expectations. We said that you would put the kids to, get, uh, to sleep on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and I would do it Tuesday, Thursday. My experience, it's Monday, and you're not putting the kids to bed, okay? They've just had a whole lot of sugar, and, and now they're not going to go to sleep. <clears throat> and what changes often when we get married is what we place in this part right here. Because there is always a gap. There is always a gap between our experiences 
our, between our expectations and our experiences. And we always get to decide. We always get to decide what we place in this gap. Now, when you first started dating, what would happen is what you would insert in the gap is this. You would believe the best. Oh, they're 20 minutes late. Oh, they're half an hour late. They must have just got caught up at work. The traffic must have just been really, really bad. Okay, guys, I'm just talking from experience. When we're dating, we make up all kinds of things to believe the best. She hasn't texted me back in three days, but I know she was super into me, so her phone must have just been broken. She must be on an overseas holiday and I've left it at home. Okay, we would make up all sorts of ways that we could believe the best in our, in our uh, relationships early on, right? But then something begins to happen and maybe you can't, can pinpoint the moment, maybe you can't, but, but all of a sudden, over time, we begin to stop inserting believing the best in the gap. And instead, what we begin to insert is this, assuming the worst. Ah, oh, damn it. Again. Again. How bad does he want this promotion? How bad does she want this promotion? We've talked about this, that if you're not going to be home on time and you're not going to put our marriage first, we need to have some serious conversations. All of a sudden, they're like, I'm assuming the worst. I'm assuming the worst. All of a sudden now they didn't put the trash out. Well, of course they didn't put the trash out because they know that I'll always come and do it anyway because they're just lazy and they take me for granted. We assume the worst. They pick the kids up from school. Of course you'd want to make me look like a bad parent because you're not going to pick up your phone and they'd always call me because I'm the first contact on the list. Now the school thinks I'm a bad parent and assuming the worst. And it's this, it's this thing that we want to talk about. How can, we, how can we look at always inserting believing the best in the gap? Now, there's two things that relate to what we place in this gap. There are two things that determine what you and what I place in this gap in our relationship. The first one is this, what you see, and the second one is who you are. The first one's pretty easy, right? This is what you experience, what you see, okay? They're late, they're not on time, they didn't pay the bill, I got the email about the overdue, okay, we had the conversation and they didn't follow through, that's your experience. So that's, that's the pretty easy part. The second one, which is it's not so easy to see, and often we deliberately try to avoid that, uh, seeing it, is this one. Who you are. Right? Because all of us grew up in families where we had this dynamic model to us. Where we had it modeled from our parents, or, or maybe uh, if your parents divorced and remarried, and so you kind of had, you had a whole spread of different people showing you either to believe the best or assume the worst and, and sh- modeling to you what to place in the gap. Then you went through high school and you maybe had some relationships and you had some relationships maybe early out of high school in, in life and you had in those relationships, maybe they were great relationships, but maybe they were also not great relationships. And maybe they gave you some fantastic habits, but perhaps they also gave you some not great habits. And you've taken all of these and all of this into the marriage and the relationship that you're currently in right now. And who you are has just as much to do with what you place into the gap as what you see. So, I want to ask you a question, and I don't want you to answer. I don't want you to nudge the person next to you. I just want you to answer this for yourself, to yourself. Do you tend to believe the best or assume the worst? Are you a person, when you, when you have this scenario and there's some expectations and some experience, and there's a gap. Are you a person who straight away jumps in and inserts believing the best? Or are you a person who straight away assumes the worst? 
<clears throat> before I go on, I just want to acknowledge that there are some of you who are probably getting really frustrated with me right now. And you're thinking to yourself, Chris, I'd like to come and rip that tiny little microphone off your head, and I'd like to smash your stupid little illustration up here, and I'd like to tell you my story. Because if you knew my story, you would know why I always have to assume the worst. If you'd experienced the relationship that I'd experienced, if you'd put up with him, if you'd listened to her, right, you would know that believing the best is really, really difficult, Chris. Okay, so you can just put your stupid illustrations away, and then we can have a real conversation. And he, here's what I'd like you to, to know. First of all, don't smash my illustrations, okay? Like, it took me 15 minutes to put these together. But secondly, if I was in your shoes, I would probably have the exact same approach. If I was in your shoes and I'd experienced your marriage and I experienced your relationships, I would probably default to whatever it is you default to putting in the gap. I'm not saying that what you're doing is wrong. I'm just saying that there's a better alternative. I'm just saying that there's a better way moving forward for all of us to begin to examine what we place in the gap so that we can have stronger, healthier relationships now and marriages into the future. I'm just saying that if you want to stay in love, although this might be incredibly difficult, it is the best way to help you do it. And what's so interesting for me is uh, as I was reading this um, uh, leadership book, okay, it has absolutely nothing to do with marriage, but it's about leadership. Um, but in the book, they're talking about marriage. And it's a book that's written by a guy called Marcus Buckingham. He's also done some of the Strengths Finder stuff if you're into... Um, if you're into leadership and you read that stuff. But the book he, re- he wrote is The One Thing You Need to Know. And in this book, essentially the big premise of the book is, um, depending on what industry you're in, you know, uh, every industry has kind of one principle or a couple of guiding principles that if you discover them, they will set you up for success in that particular industry. And so he was kind of looking at, um, and he was doing an experiment with his team to look at marriage. And so to see, hey, you, can, you don't have to, it doesn't just have to work in leadership, but it can work in marriage as well. And so they did this whole survey with all these people. Um, one, one group of married people uh, self, uh, self-proclaimed that we are happily married. Another group of people said we are unhappily married. And I think, unfortunately, um, of, of the group that was unhappily married, I think everyone but two of the relationships ended in divorce. So they really were not in a great spot. And what they discovered when they, were, um, when they surveyed and when they talked to the people who were unhappily married what they discovered is they, they had absolutely really no idea who they were married to. There was a huge disconnection between how the other person saw each other. And so it, that just led to a whole heap of um, issues in the marriage and obviously a lot of the marriage is falling apart. What they thought they'd discover when they would go and look at the, the marriages that were going really, really well is what they, what they thought they would discover is that the marriages that were going well is they would see each other more clearly. They would have more realistic expectations because the, the unhappily married couple, they had, they had a completely unrealistic expectations of each other. There was a complete disconnect. And so they thought, well, the happily married couples, they must see each other really, really clearly. What they discovered was not that. What they discovered was that the happily married couples, when they had to do a survey about their partner, that the other partner would give a higher score than the partner would give themselves. That the other partner would look at them and say, their kindness, their compassion, their forgiveness, they're willing, they're willing to move on. They would rate their partner higher than their partner would rate themselves. And what this led Marcus Buckingham and his team to conclude is simply this, that love really is blind. A spouse's positive illusion created an upward spiral 
of love. Positive illusion. Then he goes on. He says, the conviction led to security. Security fostered intimacy and intimacy fostered love. And then he goes on. He says, a husband or wife who assumes that he or she possesses strength that he or she does not possess will have a strong marriage. In other words, if you believe the best, about your spouse, you are setting yourself up for a strong marriage. And then Marcus, Buck, uh, Marcus and his team, they even go so far as to kind of give us an application. This is what he says. When there's a gap, find the most generous explanation for each other, for each other's behavior, and then believe it. Find the most generous explanation for, for this gap, and then believe it. And that kind of sounds a little bit like what Paul said, isn't it? Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. When there is a gap, love will do everything within its power to guard the relationship. Love will do everything in its power not to let something else come in that could damage the relationship. And by doing that, what love does is love builds trust. Love fosters that trust. Love ignites hope at the same time. Because then when there is a gap and you believe the best, you say, hey, I believe in us. I believe there is hope for us. And it helps both of you to persevere forward. And I know, right, particularly if you've been here throughout this series, you kind of already know where the big application for this week is going. You know what I'm going to ask you to do. But part of you is like, well, I don't want to. I don't want to, Chris, because, you know, again, if you've been in my shoes, if you've been in my relationship, you would know it's difficult. And I, I get that believing the best is hard. But here's the question I want you to consider. What's the alternative? Right? If you don't want to believe the best and you just want to go, well, I'm just going to assume the worst, where does that leave you? Where does that leave your marriage? Is this, is this the kind of marriage that you dreamed and hoped that you would grow up to have? one that assumes the worst in the gap? Is this the kind of marriage that, that you want your children to grow up in a house looking and observing and seeing what's placed in the gap? Is this the kind of marriage that when you're out with your friends and there, there's an expectation, there's an expectation, there's an experience, is this what you want your friends to see, you always assuming and inserting assuming the worst into the gap? Like, you can choose that if you want, but you just need to understand what you're signing up for. And so this week, what I, what I want to ask you to do, because you're smart, you already know this, the challenge I want you to do is, I want you to practice placing believe the best in the gap. And I only want you to do it for seven days. But I'll be honest, I have a hidden agenda. Because I hope that you won't just do it for seven days. I hope that what you'll begin to discover and see is not necessarily a change in your partner, but a change in you and a change in the way in which you think through situations, and a change in the way in which you think about your partner, and you talk to your partner, and you behave around your partner. My secret hope for you, my hidden agenda, which is now not so hidden, is that you wouldn't just do this for seven days, but that you would do your best to incorporate this into your relationship, into your marriage for the rest of your life. So this week, when they said they'd be home at 5, and it's 5.30, I want you to believe the best. When they said they'd pay that bill and you get the email that it's overdue, I want you to believe the best. When they said they'd pick the kids up or they'd get dinner 
and they come home without the kids or without dinner, I want you to believe the best. And when you begin to insert believing the best in the gap, you begin to set the tone for your marriage because straight away you de-escalate situations before they begin. Straight away before you send that email, before you send that text, before you pick up the phone and make that call, all of a sudden now that conversation is completely different. It doesn't start with, I can't believe you, or why wouldn't you, or how dare you? But it starts completely differently. It's like, hey, I know you're probably busy. Hey, I, I, I totally get you're probably slammed at work. And all of a sudden, that's a completely different conversation. Now, in the last couple of minutes, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you've been hanging on throughout this series, right? So I just want to let you know, this is the time you can eject right now, okay? Because what I'm about to say is only for Christians. If you're in this room and you're, and you're a follower of Jesus, you'd consider yourself a Christian. Here's why this is so important for us to begin to incorporate into our lives, into our marriages. Because one of our greatest opportunities to impact culture is to learn how to stay in love. I want you to think about it. If 50% of culture kind of says like, oh, geez, stay in love, ah, dicey at best, right? If you had those odds, right? If, if you were gambling for your life, if you had those odds with a lot of career decisions, you would not take a lot of those odds. But here's the thing, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we have an example of a God who wasn't content just to sit in heaven, but a God who wanted to risk it all by entering into history. A God who gave up his life and gave everything he had by dying on a cross so that we could experience love. A God who gave up everything for us so that because of nothing that we did, we could experience forgiveness. And we have an opportunity as followers of Jesus to model that in our marriages and to have other people look in and see, I don't know what they've got and I don't know how they do it, but I want what they have. It doesn't look easy, but it is worthwhile. And we have an opportunity this week by simply believing the best to begin to impact our culture and impact the next generation and stay in love. Why don't we pray? Jesus, it can be really difficult when we talk about marriages and when we talk about relationships and particularly for those of us who have maybe got into a habit of always assuming the worst. I pray that today you would help us remember that you are a God who does not assume the worst of us. That when you see us, you actually see us through the lens of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that in our marriages this week, we would begin to be believe the best. No matter how difficult it is, no matter how challenging it can be, that we want to change the way we think and change the way we approach our marriages so that we can reflect your love into the world, so that we can reflect the marriage and that we want our kids to experience one day, and so that we can ultimately change the way people view you by the way they see how much we love each other. So help us this week to place believing the best in the gap, even when it's difficult. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.